a lot of my decision making about my career as an artist has been based on putting my future in someone else's hands. Wow. So every time I've met a situation where I am dependent upon someone else to allow me to do what I want to do, I try to figure out a way to not have to do that only. Um, because at any point, they could take that away, right? At any point, they could quit accepting me to an art fair, and there goes my livelihood. This is the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Each week, I sit down and interview an expert to find out how did they develop the discipline to get on the frontier, the edge of what is knowable in their field. And for the most part, this podcast is focused on either the hard sciences or business. But this week is something completely different. This week, I sat down with artist Heather Haymart. Now, I met Heather after going to the St. Louis Art Fair held in Clayton, Missouri. This is a nationally recognized art fair where artists from all over the country come together to show paintings and sculptures and I can't even describe jewelry, anything that you can think of as art. There is a variety of the top level of of artists from all over the country that come to show off their art. And Annie and I went on a Friday night and we're walking up and down the stalls and I'm in a great mood because we're, we're just enjoying ourselves. And we encounter one art stall that I was completely captured by. I, I was drawn into it like a magnet. The colors the way the light hit each one of the boards, I was mesmerized. And I I know looking back on that night that Annie had to kind of pull on my shirt to be like, hey, calm down, because I was so magnetized by it that I just started a conversation with the artist. And within maybe a minute and a half, I invited her onto the podcast. And to my surprise and shock, she said yes. Her name is Heather Haymart. And she is an artist that has spanned everything from teaching small children to running galleries to painting murals and even now having her own special kind of art. And we'll go into a deep description of how I saw that art and what it looked like to me. And Heather does a little bit of explaining her art, but I think she's more than happy to let other people look at it and put their own meaning on it. So you will, if you're watching on YouTube, not actually see any of her art. And that's because I'd love for you to go visit her website where she has a great job of uh, having a having a website that can show off art much better than I could just by showing it on the YouTube channel. Her art can be found at heatherhaymartart.com. And if you don't go now, that's okay, because I'm pretty sure that by the end of this interview, you will have the same fascination with Heather that I did. She is extraordinary in many ways, not least of which she is not the prototypical artist, the disheveled that doesn't have anything put together. She is instead incredibly organized, very disciplined. And that's what prompted us not just to talk about art, but to talk about the business of art, how to make money in the field, how to have the discipline to be able to do something creative again and again and again. And then we go into things like having discipline to clean up your room or how to eat. This was one of those fantastic conversations. It's a rare treat to have built such rapport with somebody that is so special and such an expert in her field. It's why I am so grateful for the podcast, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So buckle in and enjoy this conversation with the very quiet and understated but magnificent Heather Haymart. 
Heather Haymart, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. <laughs> so you and I met only um, for a brief moment at the Clayton Art Fair. And for people that don't know, this is an art fair in St. Louis that brings artists from all over the United States together. And people wander up and down all through the weekend over it at night while drinking and there's music and everything going on. And it struck me that there is a strange dichotomy there, which is you have a whole bunch of artists that are expressing themselves in visual mediums. And then you have all these people that are going around talking to these artists. And I would guess that that's not the most comfortable thing for artists. Do you like talking to people at art fairs? Um, I actually do. Um, it's kind of a an odd position to be in because I am slightly introverted. I like to be alone and do my own thing. Um, and I do get nervous each time before an art fair. I have to kind of psych myself up. But once I'm there and in it, um, I end up gaining a lot from the experience every single time. Um, sometimes you meet people that aren't nice. And they say things that I wish, you know, I didn't have to weather. Is that what you're worried about beforehand, that somebody might be unkind to you? No, I no, actually not. That's not really, I think it's just the idea of just being there and being on for, you know, long periods of time. Um, because it can be so draining to to be on like that and, and, you know, to have to be nice for so long. I know that sounds horrible, but, you know, I'm there to try and sell art and explain art. And, uh, you know, it is a business, but at the same time, I'm also there to make connections. And I personally get um, something out of those interactions all the time. I learn from what people say to me and I, I see my art through their eyes, which is a really valuable thing. Um, so the nervousness, it's other stuff. Like what if we have a storm and my tent oh. gets blown away? Or what if um, what if nobody comes to the fair and I don't make any money? Or... Uh, yeah, I mean, I can, I can see that it's like all of the logistics that a regular business owner yes. would have as stress on top of the fact that you're kind of an introvert. The other thing that strikes me about being in those situations is you were saying looking at the art through their eyes. Is that something that you as an artist like really need? Do you do you need to have other people's opinions and and their thoughts on it or or is it like hey, I just produce art and if it happens to coincide with other people great. It's a little bit of both. Um it starts out being for me. And then once I'm finished with it, it's for them. And so it is nice to, to get good feedback and to connect with people. And um, when you do an art fair, you learn very quickly. Like, they're not going to connect with me. Like, they, you see people walk by and, like, the husband points at the art and the wife is like, no. You know, and you oh can man, see that has to be tough. That yeah. has to be tough. But you get used to that. Like I just, I just know that like some people like boats and some people like abstract. You know, and I can't do anything about that. Um, so, the I'm going to push this just a oh. little bit closer to you. You don't have to sit up. Just pull it towards you. That's okay. fine. Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Um, so, I do, I do benefit very much from people 
um, connecting with me and giving me compliments. I'm not going to lie. That's fabulous. You know, to sit there all <laughs> night having people go, oh, my God, this is beautiful. Like, that's wonderful. Um, but I don't have to have it to keep making art. So I wondered before you came over if it would be all right if I would describe what I saw in your art and then maybe you can describe for the listeners what you're trying to put forward. Sure. It won't be a very sophisticated description because I actually realized in preparing for this interview that I don't actually have a great vocabulary for art. And I think that that is probably one of the most limiting parts of me enjoying it because I see colors and I can only say red or blue. There's no distinct, I can't make distinctions in between those, but I'm going to, I'm going to do my best. Okay. The, what I was attracted to out of your art was that the colors were vibrant, but not overt. So there, there was a lot of reds and they would, they would collide with another color, but it never felt like it was jarring. It, it felt like it was supposed to be that way. And then as you are drawn in closer to your artwork, you have a three-dimensionality to your paintings that there's the paint is so thick that it actually comes off of the, the canvas and it becomes this almost surreal experience to be looking at something that you were prepared to be in 2D, but now suddenly you're in 3D space. And the the most striking of your paintings to me was one where I remember there being a whole bunch of red at the bottom of the painting. And then as you moved upwards, you saw that there was a tree there. Oh, mm-hmm. And I am I, I, weirdly drawn to trees. We can talk about that at, at another time. But... Um, would you say that's an accurate description? Is that how you see your art? Yes, I think so. I think that was a perfect description. I don't wow. think you should. Right. <laughs> you shouldn't worry. Um, just like if you go to the doctor and the doctor knows all the terms, right? But you go in and you're like, I have a sore throat or, a, you know, what's the difference between a cut and a contusion? I don't know. Or a bruise. It doesn't matter. The, mo- the point is, is that you communi- communicated well and I totally understand what you're saying. And then I can... I can do the same thing back. But I also think that one thing about doing art fairs especially is I'm a former teacher of art. Oh. And so uh, I think it's important. Like every single time we do an art fair, it's my chance to educate people on art because I think there are so many people like you who maybe you would like art, but because you feel like it's the unknown territory, um, maybe you don't know the right things to ask or you're intimidated. People can be intimidated by art and like, what are they supposed to think and what are they supposed to say? And, you know, through education, always that's the thing that shed light on things that need light shine on them. What age of kids were you educating? I did middle school for one year and then I did high school for the rest. And I was a art teacher for six years. Okay, so you were seven seven years teaching, and this was right when you were out of school? Yeah, I graduated. I student taught when I was so young that the teachers thought I was a student. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, I taught right out of college um, up until I had my first child. And then did you move into becoming a full-time artist? Not yet. Uh, so I, I... So I taught for the six or seven years. It's hard to remember. Um, and then I was in charge of a art club. And so we did murals around the school um, and it was just really a cool experience. And I loved those art, art club kids. Um, And so I had a mural painter come and talk to us. Um, And so then after all the kids left, he and I sat there and talked for like another two hours. And I was like, oh, I think I want to make murals. I think I want to quit teaching and do do murals for a living. (laughs) What was so drawing about it? 
I think it was, the truth of the matter is, I don't think, I am a good, at, I'm good at teaching, um, but I didn't like the management of a classroom. And so I felt like it, it just, I wasn't happy, to be honest, as, as a teacher. Um, I loved certain kids and, you know, the ones that wanted to be there, of course, like every teacher, you love the kids that want to be there and then you're frustrated with the ones that don't want to be there. And I just wasn't cut out for um, discipline and I didn't like when people were mean. <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, but... The, the more I think about it, the more that being an art teacher would expose you to sides of students that 90% of the time or 95% of the time is tamped down. Mm -hmm. And then they get this one place where certain kids are going to thrive. They either have the natural talent or they have something to express that they can't in other places. And so you are really like in... I'm probably turbulent waters. And the reason I'm thinking of that is I think I was probably a terror in art school <laughs> because it was something that it was embarrassing for me to do art because I knew it was never going to be as good as other people. And so I think it probably exposed vulnerabilities that maybe most kids, maybe another kid would feel about being in math class. I'd never really thought about it like that before. Yeah. I honestly, I really, I felt comfortable with um, some troubled kids um, it was more like the kids that just didn't care. And that, I didn't understand that. You're probably right, that they didn't care as a defense mechanism so they wouldn't look stupid. But I tried really hard to make it be an environment where failing wasn't, like talent had nothing to do with failure or su su success. It was more about effort and willingness to learn. And I tried really hard from the beginning every every year, every class, to make sure the kids knew that like, you're not going to be a favorite because you can draw well and you're not going to be disfavored because you can't. It's all about what you put into it. That was, uh, yeah, I, I would intuitively have run in the other direction. What sort of student were you? You mean when I was in college or yeah. high school? Well, yeah. When you were facing an art teacher, were you the, the art teacher's favorite? Oh, no, I wasn't actually. No, I, I loved making art and I loved my art classes, um, but I was unnoticed unnoticed mm -hmm. so then what made you decide hey i'm gonna head down the path of becoming an art teacher i well i have been making art since i was a little kid um my whole family i, I come from a long line of really creative women um my great grandmother uh i remember just seeing all her stitch work in these embroidered pieces of art that she would make where it would be like flowers and things that she'd frame and everybody in the family had them all my great aunts would be counted cross stitch that it's, you know, these beautiful colors and detail that was just fascinating to me. I had a, my mom had a friend that did these shadow boxes that I would just stare at those for hours. My mom, well, I'm skipping my grandma. My grandma, she's an amazing quilter. She, there, she used to have a ceramic studio, um, where she taught people how to do ceramics. Um, she's a, she was a seamstress. Um, she, she, you know, later on, like she learned how to, she taught herself how to watercolor. Um, there was no end to her creativity. And then my mom, I grew up with her, you know, setting up an easel in the kitchen with walnuts and trying to teach herself how to paint walnuts. Really? <laughs> yeah. So my whole, and you know, she would draw things with pastels and sketchbooks and I would just thumb through all her drawings. So it's just never not been a part of my life, uh, creativity. And does that mean that it was 
something you felt pulled to do or it was in lieu of watching television or because I genuinely don't have that like to sit down and draw for me would would actually be a punishment it would be easier for me to sit and try and meditate against a, a white wall than it would be for me to try and paint or draw something I don't know it seemed just natural I'm not naturally athletic I'm not um I watched lots of TV. I had friends. I played outside all the time. Um, but yeah, it was just part of who I was. Like it just kind of just came naturally. Um, my my draw, being drawn to it. I don't I don't even remember it being a a choice or not choice. Just part of life. And so then that made it the natural thing that you would go towards when you're hey I gotta I'm finishing up high school and now I have to go to college. Yeah. So I, when I went to high school, I went to my counselor probably my junior year and she was, I didn't have very good grades. I probably had like C average grades and I told her I wanted to go to Mizzou and she was like, basically that's probably not going to happen. And that was it for me. I mean, it was like a challenge and I was like, well, you don't think so? Well, watch. <laughs> and so then I got my crap together real quick and somehow got into Mizzou. I don't even know how it happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I know getting to Mizzou, into Mizzou is not that hard, but for me. And if know, somebody had told you you can't do it. Right. Like that's. Right. What, what was the what was the reason your grades weren't good? Oh, I was a slacker at times. I had a rough freshman year, you know, bad choices. <laughs> and uh were you a, were you a, like a kid that got in trouble smoking behind the school that kind of stuff? I I got in trouble probably at times yeah when I was younger. I I went through my rebellion phase probably right in my freshman year and then after that I seemed to kind of just get it together. Oh, way way better to do it then. Yeah. Well, maybe. But yeah. And so then you go to Mizzou and and you apply to the art department and this is like your My mom tell I don't remember this, but we went up to Mizzou and I don't remember, maybe it was like orientation or something like that. And she said that um, I went in to talk with the counselors while they stayed. I don't know what they were doing, maybe waiting in the waiting room. But I talked to a counselor and I came out and announced I was going to study art. And they were just like, what? Like, they just were shocked. Not, not bec- They just thought I was going to go into something that would, you know, be a career choice that <laughs> would make a living. <laughs> and so that was I don't know. I don't even remember saying it. I so what does an art student in college learn about art? Is it a worthwhile thing to do, study art? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Um, I think it could be better. Like I, if I had it, if I could just tell colleges what to do, and I think they're leaning towards this from what I understand, but if I could tell colleges what to do, I would, because when I went through school, um, I got a fine art degree and an art education degree. I got two degrees. And the fine art degree means that you just take art, like tons of it. I did ceramics. I did printmaking. I did metalwork. I did uh, sculpture, drawing and painting. My emphasis was drawing. But you take everything. You, I did photography. I can't think of anything I didn't take in the fine art wor- world. except Sounds for back, pretty fun. It was. It was a blast. I, I would do it again and again. But throughout it, your professors tend to tell you you're not going to make a living at this. You can't make a career at this. Nobody makes it. Nobody does this for a living. And so you just believe it. And um, so when I one, I think it was probably like my sophomore year and I was still sticking with art. And my mom was like, so what are you going to 
do for a living? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, well, you better figure that out because you got to have to figure out how to pay for your life. <laughs> and so, you know, I thought on it and I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll be an art teacher as a fallback, you know, and then it just became what I did. And so that was, that was how it all kind of just went on that track. You know, I did student teaching. I was lucky enough to get a job right away and then became a teacher and I always say that when I was a teacher, I learned more there than I did in college. I kind of got off of the college thing, and I did want to mention that if I were to do a college degree again, I would do um, fine art and business and, and or marketing. Oh, there you go. That's interesting because you are now, <laughs> now an I artist know. trying to make, yeah. make money. I've taught myself everything, like as far as marketing, business, how to do my own you know, accounting and how to keep track of taxes and learn how to market on the internet and build a website. And I mean, I've been teaching myself all of these things. And I would imagine that that's a pretty harsh dichotomy too, right? Business and art don't seem to go together. Mm -hmm. But if you are just an artist with no business, you, you will never, you will be like the art teacher said, you'll never make it. Right. Right. Maybe. I mean, there are artists out there that they are just artists and someone else kind of leads them and takes care of them. Um, that's, that is harder. You know, that is harder to find because you have to somehow, I don't know, maybe be something more special or maybe just have a good connection with someone who wants to take care of that for you. Um, do you do you, if if a kid comes to you and they're thinking about art school, do you give them the advice that you just said there every time? Yeah. And I get that question a lot. I love the chance at art fairs when I get that chance to talk to young people about that that you know if you want to be this if you want to do this t treat it like a business when did you make the conversion to being an artist that's an amateur you just love it to somebody that that can generate actual income from it boy it's been a long journey um so i i did the mural job for about two years oh wait you actually did do the mural job i did yeah what, and what does that mean? That people pay you to come paint mm -hmm. on walls? Yeah. With so, what? Uh, with what? what do you like mean? spray paint? Oh, no. I painted with acrylic paint and then I'd put a clear top coat that would protect it on the murals. So, yeah, I did. I, I did a lot of them, actually, for two years. It was a pretty successful business. Are and they around here? They have been. They, I would imagine many. Many were in private residences. Like, um, so I, one of my, my very first mural was my kid's pediatrician. <laughs> and she hired me to do like an under the water fish mural in her waiting room and so and that got me tons of business because people would come in all the time and they see have it kids and ask and for my name and so wow. yeah it was a pretty good situation and of course I gave her like a major discount because it was my very first first mural and I knew it was going to lead to better things so she got me a lot of business that way uh, and then over time it just be kind of became like a word of mouth thing and um, I don't remember exactly, but it's somewhere along the line, I was able to do a mural in Troy, Missouri at Stefanina's. Uh, my mom actually was my connection there because the owner of Stefanina's was her neighbor. And they is that a restaurant or is that? Yes. Yeah, okay. It's an Italian restaurant. So I did these like three, four by eight panels that I actually did in my house. And then um, like my husband built me this big thing that would hold them. And I was pregnant. This was the probably one of the last murals I did. I was pregnant with my second child and I was big and stepping up and down on this little step stool 
trying to get this painting finished and then they went and they hung it and it's over the bar um, but I think I, I think it may be closed but I've had people over the years you know contact me and say oh I saw your mural and did you enjoy doing art in that giant scale I mean that's that's a different way of doing it where you have to actually move your body to be able to get to another part of your canvas I loved it I loved doing murals like doing murals I loved at the time my kids I you know I had like a two-year-old and a one-year-old yeah and they were wreaking havoc all over the place you're trying to keep them alive and I was essentially a stay-at-home mom slash doing this and so I was doing it on weekends and evenings I'm home with my kids during the day and then my husband would take care of the kids in evenings and weekends when I would go do a mural and so that was another thing I didn't love because I felt like we didn't get to do anything fun you know oh interesting you know because weekends were taken up with work yeah. yeah yeah and so yeah, it was just a balancing act. And so by the time I was, um, by the time I had my second child and I decided I was done with murals and she was about nine months old and I decided to try and make a painting. Um, I, I really didn't, I was actually a fiber artist for a while. Um, I would what does make, that mean? Fiber arts is like, it's a pretty all encompassing thing. It could be like working with paper. It could be working with weaving. It could be, uh, material like fabric um but i i made these sculptures out of like wire and leather and i would like weave leather and i actually got them into some shows and i just made all kinds of different weird things out of fiber goods and i loved doing it um, but i quit once i started having kids it was like teaching and and doing that was just too much being a teacher i would do it over the summer and so in the summers when i would try to be an artist and then during the school year all your energy goes towards being a teacher. Wow. Um, so I feel like I got off track. Well, I mean, so you were talking about you're doing murals and, oh. and you're painting on these large canvases and moving your body around and then somehow make the switch to painting then? Right, yeah. So after having my second child, I took basically took a break for nine months to take care of a baby. I mean, the other one, um, she was two years old. And uh, during that time, I decided to try and make a painting. Um, so I just went down, we lived in the city, we lived in South city. So I had this really dungeony basement, but that's where, you know, I had my pseudo studio and I went down there and I made a painting. It was like, uh, like 32 by 48 size painting. So it was pretty big and it was just acrylic paint and totally abstract, something I hadn't done because I wouldn't allow myself to have fun like that with art. I always thought it needed to have like a purpose and people needed to recognize it and you know I just I don't know it was something I would just never allow myself to do just like have fun with abstract so you were down in this dungeon having fun totally yeah kind of burning off parts of uh of the old way of thinking about how art works yeah absolutely so what were you doing did you have an image in your mind that you wanted to put down on that canvas or were you just how does this work well I mean I had been trained in how to use the materials and I, you know, I know I'm capable of doing figurative work and like painting something you recognize. And, um, at that time, really, it was just play, like just putting paint down and smearing it around and seeing what I think. And I I immediately fell in love with textures while I was working and watching how the different textures crossed across each other and colors and how they played together. So, I don't, I don't know. It just is one of those things. And I, I made probably two large paintings in like a few months there. And I heard 
about this show. I forget how this even went, but I I made two paintings and the one I had a show that I heard about at this restaurant. I started getting involved with this group called Art Dimensions. And it was just this group of St. Louis artists who were coming together. It was led by um, this person named Davide Weaver. And uh, it just was this group of people. And so I, I was involved with them. And I used to scour the Riverfront Times trying to find like art things to get involved in. So I finally found something. And there was this bar that was opening called Jabonis. And it was in Tower Grove, um, which is just a Grove. neighborhood inside of St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was the Grove. Okay. I, I don't know if you know about the Grove. Now it's a big deal, but right. back then it was like really rough. And so she had she was probably one of the beginning people that like got, you know, the Grove going, I think. And that was a long time ago cuz my daughter was born in 2001. And oh so yeah. It was wow. probably 2002 that I did that where I put my painting in there and she bought it. Like it matched. <laughs> I know you everybody talks about don't match your art to the couch, which I don't think that's what this was about but it just happened to go perfectly with this crazy ottoman she had <laughs> so she bought it i sold it for like 200 dollars to her and was this the first time you had sold a painting yep instead of a and w- would that have been tangibly different than a mural where people are like here here's the canvas in my house and this one is you're expressing something and it connects with somebody so deeply that they decide to purchase it Oh, uh, yeah. I was completely hooked. Like, it, that's all it took. I did that. And that second painting I told you about, my uh-huh. co- my cousin bought it from me. And yeah, that, like those two experiences right there, I was just like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. <laughs> and it was, uh, it felt invigorating because people were buying it and oh, saying that they loved it. It and... was very validating. Yeah. And how did you set the price on these first paintings? Start low. Just start low and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, that was that was it. I had read a lot. Of, I read you know a lot of magazine articles and books and things about how to try to get into the art world, and so that was one of the ad- things of advice that people give gave me through reading those articles was you know start low and uh, see what happens, and if it goes well, up your price a little bit, and so that's what I've done. And so then if you think about from there, when the Grove is just getting started in the early 2000s to 2019, you appear to have a pretty well-established business online. And uh, what is your business of art now? What are you doing? How do you, how do you operate? Um, so my business is definitely in all that time has evolved over a lot of time from, and it's just had different iterations Um, But I was lucky back then. My brother was a programmer, and so I got him to build me a website early on. Big advantage to get out there first. Yeah, Yeah. and so it was just kind of an online presence. I didn't have a store, but it was a way, you know, like an online business card, kind of a portfolio type of thing. And eventually, he I think, if I remember right, he might have gotten it to where I could sell things. I can't remember. Um, But so how am I where I'm at today. Is that what you asked? Yeah. I mean, more or less, just what is your business now? Through lots and lots of trial and error, I've learned that what I really want to do is I thought for a while, what I wanted to do is just sell online. If I could quit doing the art fairs, I would like to sell online. No anxiety. Don't have to worry about storms or people show up or breaking art. Exactly. Yeah. And it, I don't know if you know, but when you apply to an art fair, you have to submit artwork and you can get accepted or rejected. 
And so a lot of my decision-making about my career as an artist has been based on putting my future in someone else's hands. Wow. So every time I've met a situation where I am dependent upon someone else to allow me to do what I want to do, I try to figure out a way to not have to do that only. Um, because at any point, they could take that away, right? At any point, they could quit accepting me to an art fair, and there goes my livelihood. Yeah, like building barns on rented land. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so and, and it was the same way when um, I had a choice between, a, you know, try. I had tried to get into, like, you know, reputable galleries around St. Louis and, um, you know, kind of had a little bit of success with that. But then I realized, I don't, I feel like this is just an ex exercise in futility. Like it, it was just not the way I wanted to do things. I didn't feel in control of my career. Yeah. And for people that don't understand the gallery world, that is you make an arrangement with somebody that has physical space, mm -hmm. a room or a studio, and you get to hang up your paintings. But in exchange for you hanging up your paintings and them driving people there because they have a reputation for this person finds innovative art or interesting art, then you're going to give a certain percentage. And it's usually not a small percentage. No, it's usually half. Yeah, half. Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't know that. Yeah, 50, 50, 40, 60, right around there. Wow. Yeah. And that's okay. Like, I was willing to pay it. You know, if they were bringing me business and they were doing all that work for me, I believe galleries are valuable and they deserve what they get. I don't have anything against galleries. It was just my own personal, like, I didn't want to be beholden to someone who would maybe eventually says, we don't want to carry your work anymore. Right. And you've built all that uh, yes. brand equity up with the people that come to their gallery and, and now it's just dissipated. Own. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so then it evolved and I got involved in like art co-ops where I felt like more like I'm owning my own business. And so a bunch of artists that want to feel that same way kind of come together and um, co-opt the business. So we had like a gallery. It was Gateway Gallery in Clayton. Um, and they it, it's just like a bunch of artists and you meet every month and you run a business together and so like someone takes care of marketing and someone takes care of um buying the toilet paper or whatever and someone else takes care of i don't know what managing else. the shop our website yeah, okay. yeah those so it was like a co-opted uh situation where artists got to and then the the main event was that we would have these receptions where we get the opportunity to sell to customers um, and display my work. So that was a really great experience where I learned so much. And then after that, I decided, in the meantime, I'm always doing a million other things. Like, so I taught art camps um, because we, I wasn't bringing in very much money and the kids were getting to where they could go to kindergarten. And so it, it, it was like either go get a job or figure out something else that you can do while you still make art. And so I would do things like work at a gallery, be answering phones and things like that I would taught art camps in Chesterfield Arts and like take my kids with me and they got to do the camps too and I don't know there's so many different things I did was this a difficult time I mean because you're yeah. you're trying to be an artist and you want to just be painting and selling yeah so tell me about that oh it was exhausting it was so I also prided myself in being a stay-at-home mom and so I wanted to do a good job with that. And I didn't want my kids to um, not have me 100%. Right. And so I was constantly torn between those two things. 
um, between, you know, wanting to be there for my kids 100%, but also really wanting to pursue this art career. And then knowing that my time is just going to always be divided up until, you know, probably middle school, it was just going to be that way. And so I was always struggling with that. Um, And then, you know, trying to make money too, like trying to figure out how to contribute to the household income also. So yeah, it was, it was a stressful time. Um, But I wouldn't trade it because what I did get to do is I did get to take care of my kids and I did grow my business. I was just tired. (laughs) So when I think about art being a business, it, it strikes me, um, how you maintain like you're essentially selling creativity in a way right that that you that you capture and you put in a into a format that you can then hand to other people how do you have the discipline to be able to capture to bring in that that muse that allows you to be creative and deliver day in and day out so that you can have a business once i was allowed to devote all of my time this is hard to say because I also owned a gallery for a while with my mom at the Chesterfield Mall. And we did kind of like a, a co-opted thing with the artists. They would rent space from us. But I would basically ran the gallery and she ran kind of like a decorative arts side of the business. And we taught classes and all kinds of things. And so right after my kids ended up going to middle school and I had this freedom, this opportunity came up and we gave it a shot. And so then that took all – it was kind of like my kids not taking – that time it became the gallery took that time that we had together and so in 2015 we decided to close and um that that I feel like that was when I finally got to a hundred percent all in grow my business and so it's only been what's that four years, four years yeah. yeah and so and at that time again I'm always at this crossroads of like well if if you do better this year maybe you could keep doing art and if you don't well maybe you need to go get a job it is just always that and so I'm always like that is very, that's an inner tension yeah it's very motivating too yeah and so when gets uh, you to do the things that you don't want to do right and so yeah once the gallery closed um then I was like free to just a hundred percent do that and it was just no it's been no question like am I gonna go to the studio and paint heck yeah I've got time now. I can do it if I want to. And it's, it is a discipline thing. Um, when you're a creative person and someone full of anxiety, it's it's the weirdest thing. It's the weirdest experience. to. I wake up on a, at a certain time every morning because I want to make sure. What time do you wake up? I wake up at 6.30. Okay. And uh, I do that mostly because my daughter, she's still in high school, my youngest daughter. My oldest is at college. And so I get up to make sure she gets off okay and, you know, just make sure she woke up, those kinds of things. And then I jump in the shower and get on with my day. But when it's time to, like, everybody's gone and it's time for me to go down to the studio, every single time I have to kind of, like, muster up the motivation to get down there, even though I want to be there. It's such a weird... Have you... We actually spoke about this very briefly at the art fair, and then I realized that I was like way overstepping because I was very excited to meet you. Um, but the the concept of resistance, have mm-hmm. you heard of this term? No, I haven't. So there's a book called The War of Art, and oh. it's it's about like... Yeah 
how do you manage the, if you're going to be a creative, how do you make sure you have the discipline to do it? And I read it right at the time when I decided I'm going to go in, I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to leave the corporate world and do this thing. And the book is fascinating because it names what is a voice that is in everyone's head that you don't even realize is a voice. It's just a part of the cacophony of sound, which is, you know, when you start jogging, right? You, you know, you're like, I'm going to start, I'm going to start exercising. The first day you're really excited. So you go out and do it. The second day you're like, Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. And then the third day a voice says, well, you might get hurt or it might be too cold out or you worked so hard yesterday or whatever it is. It's all of these reasons why you shouldn't do this thing. That's the voice of resistance. And once you name that voice of resistance, then you start seeing it show up in all sorts of places that was always there. Mm -hmm. You just didn't have the name for it. And I can completely relate to you saying, you know, in the morning I, I'm excited about working, but there's something that keeps me from it. And that's what I'm so curious about is how can you just keep walking past resistance every day? It is definitely all about habits and like routines for me in particular. And so once I'm done with my breakfast, like I, I have a choice to make, right? I can procrastinate and look at my phone and read the news or whatever, or just go over and fill my water bucket with water because I don't have water in my studio. I have to get it from the kitchen and take it down to my basement studio, which is really nice. I My basement studio is wonderful. Um, but it does not have water. So that's kind of like one of those things. Like if I look across and see my bucket, I'm like, just get over there and fill that with water. Let's go. You know? Wow. What a metaphor, yeah. right? That seems like a heck of a metaphor. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> and is it, uh, is, is it something you succeed at every day? Do you get in in pain every day? I try. Um, if I don't, there's a reason like, um, maybe, something like this right now oh like, no I yeah. kept you from filling up that, your bucket oh no <laughs> that's okay though um but and then I've gotten myself to a point where if I don't get paint time in the morning then I'll try to shift and maybe paint in the evening unless I don't have a major deadline or you know if I'm not low then I I tend to slack off on that part of it and I'll just be like well I had to I had no time I couldn't paint today and so you know, if we if we carry out the metaphor of the bucket and say, you know, you've got to fill it up and then you've got to go downstairs, your paintings are extremely expressive, or, or at least when I see them, the thing that reflects back is there is passion here. There, there is uh, somebody was trying to say something that they want to be Lindy. They want to live on long into the future. How do you capture? It's, it's not just as much as like, hey, I got to fill up the water and go downstairs and start grinding away because you, you can't just grind. You have to be creative in some way. Yeah. Um, I feel lucky that comes pretty naturally. Like I, I don't I rarely look at a board and not know what to do. Um, so when I get downstairs, I typically will sit down on a chair and a cat will end up on my lap. And I'll stare at a blank board. This is when I'm beginning a painting. If I've got paintings going, it's simple. You just get going. You can just already grab onto the wall and... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But when I'm beginning a painting, yeah, I usually will sit down, kind of just stare at that blank board, and somehow there's just... Sometimes I'll have like a thought in my mind, like I would like to infuse this painting with, you know, joy is kind of my tagline of... Of, I want joy to go into my paintings 
so that joy will come out of my paintings. Wow. That is like the highest bar that you could set. I mean, I can't, I can't think of another higher bar that you could set than I want, I want my painting to express joy. Yeah. It's important to me. And I, it's also selfish. Like I can, I can definitely go down the negative and I've had those times where I thought, oh, I could definitely get into making that <laughs> hard, you know, emotional stuff that, you know, makes people hurt. But I don't want that in the world, you know, and I don't want it in my life. I could choose to focus on that, but I'm every single day that I make a painting infused with joy is my attempt at kicking out the bad stuff of my own. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely selfishly motivated and I get, I get something out of it. But then I hope that once I've done that, then someone else gets something out of it as well. And when you're looking at that white canvas, do you imagine something that then you express on there? Or like, I don't even have a great way to ask this question and there may not be an easy way to answer it, but I'm trying to get at what begins as where are you pointed in a direction? How can we understand this? So it's a combination of like materials, right? Like color and texture. And I think about that, like technical stuff. And what do I want to do with that today? Like, what, do, what colors do I want to mess around with? And what texture ideas did I have that I want to apply to this one? So there's that, the technical side. Um, but then there's also the imagery side. And since they're abstract, it's hard to explain it as imagery. But when I look at a blank board, um, I always, I've tried to explain it like this before. You know when you close your eyes really, really hard and like you keep your eyes closed and you can see all those colors kind of going around? Yeah, sure. Um, I feel like that's what happens between me and my painting. So I'm sitting there staring at it and without closing my eyes real tight, I can just kind of see those things come onto the board before I begin. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so then it just kind of goes from there. Once I see it, it's done. I'm ready. And then I get going. Sometimes I sketch it on the board. Sometimes I write on the, like if uh, I had a painting I called Time to Think because I was feeling a little overwhelmed at the time and I just needed some time to think. And I wrote that on there. And so then that became the title of that painting. And then sometimes I don't do that. Sometimes I just go right in with color and texture with no drawing at all. It just depends um, I think the creative process needs to be a little more flexible. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine for me, w one of the biggest challenges that I have with creativity is if I sit down to be like, I'm going to be creative now, it's almost impossible. I, I almost have to distract myself from what I'm doing. So I hate running. I, I don't enjoy any part of it. But most of my good ideas for, so I go out and give a lot of talks. Most of my good ideas for giving a good talk are about five miles away. And I have to run out and come back and about mile three or four, they start coming. And then I can sit down and bang, bang it all out. Yeah. But for me, I, there's no way I could just sit in front of a blank PowerPoint or a piece of paper and draw anything out. In fact, the harder I try that, it's it's almost like cracking my pencils or something yeah. like that. Oh, I can understand that completely. Um, I think that whatever is happening in your brain when you're running so that you can come back and do those things um, is similar to whatever I'm doing uh, prior to going down to the studio. Um, even if it's just like piddling around, watch, looking at Pinterest for a little bit or, um, reading an article, 
um, of the news or something like there, there's rarely not something else going on back here for me. So that's just part of it. And I, I do think that there's like, as I walk down the steps to my studio, that's when something changes, you know, it's kind of a mindset, but also like a process, like, well, what you're describing about filling up the bucket and then walking down the stairs, that is perfectly in the war of art where he says, you have to have a ritual, you have to follow this ritual. And I'm a total believer in in habits. Like one of the things that I lost when I started my own company was when I went to work, I used to wear the exact same thing every single day. Mm-hmm. And people would kind of uh, laugh or joke about it, but it cut off a whole bunch of thinking that I used to have to do. And now I find because I'm just living here, it's just me, I just throw on whatever clothes are there. But I'll probably get back to that level of extreme habits because the more that my schedule is tightened down, the more creative I find myself to be. And then I always think that because as you get more creative, then you start being like, oh, I can let this thing go or I can try. And then before you know it, you're putting on weight and not getting things done. And Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you're right that it somehow simplifies everything else so that the one thing that needs to have the most energy gets it. That's right. And so when you think about things like color, do you have to, do you have an emotion into those colors already? Mm-hmm. Or do, does that change depending on how you're feeling? Yes. And yes. Um, I think I definitely have kind of like a code in my head of like what colors is express what emotions. Um, but then when I do different combinations of colors, that changes that. And so it'll also be like after the colors are together, then I feel something too. So it's, it's both. And do you feel like you have a pretty accurate idea of the emotion that you're putting in with colors that somebody is going to be able to pull that same thing out or does it really matter to you? Uh, I've just, I, I don't, I try not to attach myself to what someone else experiences. Wow. And so I put what I do in and then when people start to look at my work and I hear how they receive it, uh, it's, I learn something new all the time when that happens. Um, sometimes people are right on, like I thought this, I put it into it and then this person felt it and I'm like that's an awesome feeling but then there's other times when I make this painting that has this certain message or feeling or thought and someone else had a different one and when they express their thought about my art to me um and I see it that's exciting too oh you know yeah that's that's uh that's very it's egoless right it's it's probably a very healthy thing to be able to do because I know when I go to give a talk if somebody comes back and says I thought of it this way I am I'm really pretty tied to how I meant it to be right I'm I'm up there expressing an idea but to hear you feel a sense of joy or at least being able to to pull a sense of satisfaction out of that that's pretty healthy I would think I hope so yeah I hadn't thought of it that way but yeah it's it's pretty cool. I mean, to see someone else's interpretation or that they felt something different is all it does is expand rather than constrict. Oh, that's great. Right. So, I mean, then I just know something else I hadn't thought of and that's an amazing thing to have. So are all of your friends artists? 
No. Um, I have a lot of artist friends. Uh, Is your husband an artist? No. <laughs> no? No, he would laugh at that too. Uh, for the longest, for most of my, for all of my career of being an artist, he has made my boards for me. So he's very handy. Um, and so he's always made the boards that I paint on. I don't paint on canvas. I paint on wood. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I didn't even realize that by looking at your paintings. Yeah. They, I, don't, I, li- I like a hard surface. I use, I don't mean to get off the top. No, of this my is fine. Husband, we can talk about whatever. But uh, my mom actually invented the product that I use in my paintings. So different artists use lots of different media to make their art. I use acrylic paint and then this acrylic based paste. That is the thicker stuff that you see in my painting. Which is why you can make that texture then? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I use color and texture together. And in those thicker areas, that the bulk of that is more of this texture paste that my mom actually invented. It's called wood icing. And so she's been doing that since I began. So I made those two paintings I told you about with no texture product. And then she, at the same time, was kind of developing this stuff. And so I tried it. And then, so I've been doing it the entire time that she invented it. I've been using this texture in my work and it's evolved. It's been so many different things over the years. Well, there's something truly like um, magical about your mother creating the the textured paint that you're using. That's pretty yeah, surreal. It is. It is. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing, I think. And it's been a real treat, you know, to get to. That's why we were partners when we were at the gallery together. Oh, that's right. So she sold her product and I sold art. And then I had other artists come sell their art. And she had um, classes and taught people how to use her product and sold other paint products and things. And she was definitely in the more decorative finishing realm of things. So like she would, you, you would use her product. Many people used her product on like furniture and cabinetry to add an element of interest or creativity to things so you mentioned anxiety about having art shows and it's something that you deal with how do you balance between anxiety and trying to create paintings of joy well I've learned I didn't realize this is how it was happening but uh, painting has been one of those things that helps me um, slow down my thinking and so I go through life uh I don't know, having a lot of thoughts all the time. And it's not just one set of thoughts. There's a few thoughts in there, you know, like I think of them as like forefront thoughts and then background thoughts. Yeah. And they're constant simultaneously all the time. And uh, it can be great. I mean, I think quickly and I can, I'm a problem solver and, you know, I, I'm a creative problem solver. So, you know, anytime something's going on, I can think it through pretty quickly and figure it out the solution. Uh, but it's also pretty exhausting when you're constantly worried about things that aren't going to happen, you know, like the safety of your children or the, you know. Um, so it's that level. It's not just, hey, we got to make sure I pay that bill and I've got to get to the store. But it's are my children safe? And Sure. Yeah, it's pretty exhausting. <laughs> I think that I'm um, fortunate in the sense that I don't have the same level of anxiety that I've witnessed other people in my life have. But it also is a little bit of a handicap because I don't understand what goes on in the minds of people that have high anxiety. And I know probably all the way through my 20s, I kind of blew off anxiety. And I actually had a roommate uh, in graduate school that suffered from panic attacks. Mm. 
And that was the first time in my life that I was like, whoa. When he was saying he was stressed out, he was not kidding because now he's lying on the floor and it looks as though he's having a heart attack. That's terrible. And so it when when you when did you start to realize that the anxiety that you had was not the anxiety that other people had? Just recently, actually. Probably oh. in, in the last Well, that's not true. Maybe about 10 years ago, I became aware of it. Uh, and then since then, I've become more aware of it. I guess we'll put it that way. Um, and so, and, and realizing that I, I could work harder to do something about it. Um, so, you know, I, people say to try meditation, and I have tried that, and I do believe in it, um, but I have a little bit of a hard time sticking with it. Um, and what I realized is that I think painting is kind of my meditation um, because my mind is so active. Uh, when I paint, it's like something with my hands and something with my mind is causing me to slow down, my mind to slow down. I, I mean, that makes per- perfect sense to me. I started the practice of meditation, but I also have those times when I'm like, I'm too busy for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also have started um, doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Oh. And the fascinating thing about that is you go... So a lot of people don't really know the difference between like jujitsu and say karate. But jujitsu, are you familiar with it at all? Not a lot. No. So jujitsu is the you go and you can use any move that you want that's not striking or kicking or biting or anything like that. So it's almost rustling, but it's you can use the collar of the of the the thing the person is wearing. You can manipulate oh. their sleeves, and so what you're going to is to the point when the other person taps out. So you are going all the way to the edge of if they kept going, you would either break an arm or you'd be or you'd be choked. Yeah. But for me, I can walk into that studio with like as high of anxiety as I get stress or whatever. But you walk in there and you are so on that edge of chaos, right? Right where things are out of control for you that by the time you're done, I walk out of there and I don't feel anything other than happiness and contentment and just total um yeah still waters is what i would i would describe it as so when people talk about meditation through some other form like painting it makes total sense to me that it doesn't have to be i am seeking the 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 thinker of the thoughts (laughs) right well and i think what i learned was that um meditation is all about mindfulness and i just i couldn't get my head around that um but i realized when i'm painting that's what i'm doing is being mindful so uh when you're trying to slow down your thoughts um just purposely slowing down your thoughts is not so simple but if you give yourself something to focus on like with a lot of people that's meditation but for me having something to do with my hands and my eyes and my brain all at the same time is somehow being mindful for me and are those voices then tamped down? Do they go away? Do you get to capture their creativity? Uh, they don't go away. Um, but maybe there's just less of them. They're, in other words, they don't take over as much. Do you feel like those voices, and I was kind of naming them earlier as resistance, do, do they feel quintessentially you? Do they feel like that? those are the voices of Heather? Or do they feel like the voices of some other thing? both mostly me though yeah it's there's definitely another aspect of like hearing other people 
say bad things or other people disapprove or, you know, like that other stuff that I, I think other people can relate to that, like, you know, you worry about what other people think in situations or maybe you had an argument. So you're thinking about that person's point of view, Oh yeah, you know, and that kind of replays in my head at times, you know. That was probably the best thing about meditation for me was there, there's a guy named Sam Harris who <clears throat> he made an app for meditating, but he also has these like tiny lectures about them. And one of the lectures he talks about is if you find yourself continuing an argument that you had with somebody a half hour ago or a day ago, you are, you are not focused. You're not there. You're not present in this moment. You are present in a moment that you have no ability to change whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that was very helpful to me. That is helpful. Yeah. Cause I spent a lot of time thinking, Oh, if I had only said this thing and I don't even mean just in arguments, I mean like in a disagreement or in some situation where I know I could have done it better. And mm -hmm. I, I sit there mimicking what I know they would have said and imagining all these various situations of what I would have said or could have said. Mm -hmm. But in the end of the day, it's like scribbling on a piece of paper. It's not really getting you anywhere. No, you're right. That's, I think that's probably one of the more important things I'm learning about anxiety is learning to uh, acknowledge or recognize when it's not doing any good and then do something about that fact. You know, like don't allow that conversation to continue because it's going nowhere yeah there's no there's nowhere and are your uh are your daughters artistic they are yeah i i laugh about how probably for the first 10 years my oldest daughter hated crayons like she hated coloring and i it was like what kind of torture is this that an artist has a daughter <laughs> color <laughs> and then my youngest daughter she was you know uh, like constantly uh, coloring and, and doing all the artistic things that, you know, little kids do. Um, but my oldest daughter over time, uh, became quite a, a pen and ink artist. And so I, I guess just pen, just pen on paper. So she just still doesn't like color, but she does these pen, pen drawings that are wonderful. I mean, she was going through a hard time and, uh, that process really helped her and she's continued it. Like she's fantastic. And she never, she took maybe a couple drawing cl uh, classes in uh, high school. Um, and it, of course, I taught them things all the time. I would. What can you teach about art? How can you, how can you hand, uh, to me, it seems like something impossible to learn. You Not either have all. it or you don't. Really? No, no, it's technical. So like if, if you could teach someone how to work on a car, you can teach someone how to draw. It's really? You would put it that? Sure. Tell me more about that. It's really just about observation. And so when it, it, you start with drawing, like typically art progression starts with drawing and goes to other things. Um, and so when you're doing a drawing, uh, it's typically art teachers will have a student draw a still life or draw a figure like the human being. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a process where you try to draw what you see and then you learn ways to do it. Like you learn tools and tricks on how to draw what you see. Like one of the tips is to draw around things rather than draw the thing, draw the space around things. And when you do that, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I drew the thing. Oh, that's interesting because you'd be just saying, it's almost like not looking directly at it in order to be able to see it. Yeah. Yeah, in a way. Wow. 
that is meditation that that is at its very core that is definitely meditation look at the thing but don't look directly at it yeah and there's just all kinds of ways to do that i mean give me more of these (laughs) i like i like that what are other tricks well there's more uh just technical things too like you just learn which pencils make different kinds of marks and which are going to be dark and which are going to be light and then which kind of marks express this type of thing um and you know how do i shade and blend you know naturally so where it doesn't look like scribble but it looks like a blending and that's all technical practice you know just like everything else that everybody learns in the world wow you know i kind of have felt like uh, there are people that are artistic and people that are not and the people that are artistic can hone in on a style but i'd never really thought about it well, I'd never thought about it in, in any way like this. And I, I was talking last week about um, the MC Escher exhibit that I thought was really neat. Because on the first floor of the exhibit at the World Chess Hall of Fame, you see when he was just getting started. And then you go upstairs and you see how he was a master. I didn't see it. I would have loved to, but I didn't even know about it until just recently. But I knew I missed it. Uh, I mean, it, it was phenomenal. I'm... I'm uh, And I would like to see more art like that. In fact, it'd be really interesting. I'd be interested to see your previous art and then how it grows. Because it wasn't until I saw that that exhibit that I realized like, oh, people grow over time. They hone this. They become a master. You aren't just a master artist just because you have that innate talent. Right. It's It's not magic. There's nothing magic about it. I mean, some people are you know, technically minded and some people are mathematically minded, right? Or, you know, biology is there really, they just understand more easily. But, and so creativity, that's true. But I think creativity spans across everything. Like I have a sister-in-law who's a doctor and she's also took drawing classes in college too. Um, But she, she explained to me that she feels her profession is creative because she is trying to be a creative problem solver when she hears symptoms and she's trying to help someone figure out what's wrong with them you know that's creative too and And it's always true that you can't the the more that you become an expert it's the more you know the rules then the further you get away from them the more you can apply it as opposed to being like i don't know i don't care about the rules at all so i'm just going to start from scratch so i guess what you're saying here makes makes a lot of sense. I just never really thought about it that way. Yeah, I think most people don't. I feel like for some reason, society has made art be so many things. It's not, um, it's not, we're not starving artists. That's just a silly thing that people have said for years and years. And like, we're not crazy. I mean, some of us are, but aren't we all like, there's crazy doctors and crazy truck drivers. So like, sure. Um, just all those stereotypes about art. Yeah, I mean, to be totally candid, I was expecting you to be less well put together. I I, uh, I was imagining a person that, um, you know, would show up, you know, carrying bags of things and, and be dis- disorganized. But this conversation has, I mean, you seem to be a very disciplined person. I hear that a lot. And I've met lots of artists that are the full range Um, people that are you know totally disheveled and don't have anything together and people who are maybe more together than me Um, and I mine mine has come over time I think that I was a mess like my room was a disaster in college I had crap everywhere all the time I was late everywhere I don't I kept a calendar but (laughs) you know like 
it it happened over time it happened over I think out of necessity, basically when I had kids, I think that having kids made me become more disciplined. And do you now clean up your room and make your bed in the morning? And I get my husband to make the bed. <laughs> hey, it doesn't matter as long as it gets made, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I th- you're describing about out of necessity. That was me as well. You know, I, I um, in college, I was in shame. If you had gone to my locker in middle school or high school, I was just dumping things in there and then. Um, I was a deckhand on a ship and I was probably the worst bunkmate because I just, I just didn't care. And then it wasn't until I was in my thirties when I was like, Hey, wait a second. If you make your bed every day, then you get to go to bed in a made bed. And it's pretty great. (laughs) And then you start realizing like, wait, I can expand out from clean up my room to all these other areas of your life. And I would, I, I'm, this is a really good conversation for me. This is uh, cathartic in some way, <laughs> good. but that, that my, the level of creativity that was open to me is always higher. The more I ratchet down my discipline. Yeah, I think so too. I, and maybe not everybody works like that, but it, that's how it works for me for sure. You were saying earlier that you are trying a, a new diet before we, we, before we put this on. When you start a new thing, like a new discipline, and we can talk about it, is, are you worried about that messing with your creativity? Is that something that you you are like aware of, or no? I've got enough flexibility; I can try new things. Yeah, no, I'm I can be flexible and try new things. And what are you trying? Uh, I've been trying inter- intermittent fasting for how long? Uh, oh, maybe two weeks. Oh, okay. So this is brand new. Brand new. Yeah. And is this the first time that you've experienced hunger like intentionally? No, I think I've, I've over the years maybe had some bad habits. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. But, um, like this is, I'm, I'm a healthy, uh, I have a healthy attitude around food and things now, but when I was, you know, younger in college, I was like, Oh, I'll just go without eating till I lose weight. <laughs> you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> Not like I had anything clinical, but yeah, it was stupid. Um, and now, yeah, I was just thinking, did you bring this up? Cause you heard my stomach growl. <laughs> no, uh-uh, no, no. Uh-uh. Um, cause I, yeah. So this is brand new. I have a girlfriend who, uh, came here to visit from Arizona and she told me about her sister and, and she are trying it. And I was like, I'll try it. My husband, you know, he's been trying to lose some weight and, and get healthy. And he was trying the low carb thing again, which he's typically had success with. And this time it's just not really working for him. And so I told him about it and we've watched a couple of YouTube videos. I haven't even read a book yet. And so we, we just kind of like have halfway been trying it like, like five days a week. And then maybe because we've had things going on on the weekend, we haven't really tried that hard. I know there are people that will disagree with what I'm about to say because they'll say, no, there's things like leptin and ghrelin and there's all these chemicals and hormones that get set off in your body from inter- intermittent fasting. But my belief is one of the, the curiosities about modern civilization is that we have access to unlimited amounts of food. We can have it in any quantity we want. We, there's, no, there's no season in which carbohydrates are readily available and then ones where only fats are available. Mm-hmm. But now, in order to be able to manage that, we have to have rules. And those rules, it doesn't always really matter what rule you're applying, just that you apply one over the long term. And it's that, it's that sense of discipline that if you, if you do the same thing over and over again, eventually you will dial it in and, and it'll work. And that's why I think intermittent fasting is a, is a great idea for some people because it says, 
hey, I can only eat meals during these hours. And it and it it cuts out all of that decision making, just like wearing the same clothes every day does. Right. Uh, in the very short time that I've been doing it, uh, one of the things that I've loved is the time it saved me. Like really in, in the morning, I realize, oh, I don't have to worry about rinsing out my smoothie cup and I don't have to worry about actually making the smoothie you know, just, in, and then. And the activation energy that you waste, like, is it time to make a smoothie? Should I yeah. start making a smoothie? Right. Just everything about it. I'm like, wow, this is kind of awesome. I just gained like at least a half hour in my day. Wow. You know, just not messing around with breakfast. And uh, I know some people skip lunch and they do just like one meal a day. We've been doing two meals a day. So lunch and dinner. Um, and I don't know. I It's, it's kind of nice. And then I hear about these things called, this thing called Autophagy, a, a autophagy. Uh, yeah, the name is familiar. I'm not even going to try and say it because I don't want to be wrong. A u t o p h a g y. Autophagy. Yeah. Okay. And apparently, it's some kind of phase that your body gets into when you do intermittent fasting, where your cells will regenerate more willingly or more frequently, or something. I truly don't understand it completely, but the idea is that like it helps improve your skin condition if you have a condition of on your skin, like. Um, eczema or something like right. that it can help with that i just think that's what a fascinating thing and 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 it's great to explore right like what a what a wonderful position we're in in society where you can try these things and and the cost to to try them is just your discipline and it's just the does this throw other things out of whack in my life because unless you go to an extreme on them they're not really all that dangerous of no. an idea right And honestly, what I think about it in the beginning here is it just doesn't, I think you mentioned this before when we were talking, it does feel like, oh, I'm just skipping breakfast. Well, I always used to skip breakfast. Like I have to make myself eat breakfast, honestly, because I don't really want it. And so, yeah, it just seems not very different from that at all. Yeah. I, I mean, just like everything else in my life, I have become extremely ordered about my food. So I eat the same thing at breakfast and then I have my, my dinners planned throughout the week. So then they, they couple with my lunch. But if I didn't, if I wasn't that regulated, it would seem like intermittent fasting would be, it would be a fine plan because it, it just, it sets up a heuristic where I don't have to know a lot of the details. I just know that when I do this thing, then I get this result. Right. Well, the other thing that, and I know that lots of people approach intermittent fasting a lot of different ways, but one of the things they say is that like, you can kind of eat what you want to. And, um, you know, when you are a person who like tries to find new ways to be healthy, like for instance, my husband was being low carb, um, and I don't eat meat, you know? So like, having that always be a part of your life where you're constantly trying to figure out what am I going to eat? You know, what's allowed in this particular diet I happen to be on right now? You know, it's just, it takes away all of that. And really, if you just say, okay, I'm only going to eat from this time to this time, but it doesn't, you know, it's not the end of the world. If today I had corn chips and salsa for lunch, you know, um, it just is freeing, you know, in a way. And it's it's really ama- it's amazing how much time we spend thinking about wanting to be fit and wanting that to be something that's a that's a deep part of our lives. But it's so complicated to know how to do it that right. that's why I love heuristics, right? Just if I follow these rules, I don't even have to know why it works. Right. Have you um, heard of this guy named Naval Ravikant? 
So Naval is a uh, philosopher. I think he was like a venture capitalist. And then he he started tweeting about interesting ideas. And he has uh, a, a phrase. And I'm interested to see what you think of this as the artist, which is that all people want three things. They want to be fit. They want to be wealthy. And they want to be happy. Does that seem right to you? That That kind of triangle? I think so. I can think of other things too, but yeah. What else? Because this is a this is a, a thought experiment that I've been having with my friends lately, mm-hmm. which is to say, is he right? So fit, wealthy, and happy. Happy. Hmm. Of course, my first thought was creative, and so, but I guess happy, you know, creativity leads to happiness for me. And okay. So then my other thought was, yeah, fit is good for sure and and wealthy it it definitely relieves pressure right um and wealth well really all of them wealth is one of those things that a lot of times it's a relative scale right like you feel wealthy compared to what just like beautiful you're beautiful compared to what right and and uh but the happy one is the one that is is a nebulous nebulously defined idea because if you can use happy to circle everything uh then you would include creative in there i i would also think people like progress i think even if you were wealthy happy and fit the the real the real sense of satisfaction in life is moving towards any one of those three things or all three at the same time as opposed to the actual accomplishment of it absolutely I, I do think that um, drive is like one of the things that keep, oh, I'm sorry, it, that keeps us going. Uh, and so, yeah, pro- I can see how those three things can eventually not be enough because you may want to achieve more wealth or maybe you uh, want to achieve a different type of happiness or want to be fit in a different kind of way. It, when uh, you've talked about your husband and how he makes the boards for you and he's not an artist, has he been understanding of, of the world of an artist to, to you, do you think? Yeah, he's been extremely supportive, like always. Um, I, I, he, he wants to see me succeed, but I think he also feels a sense of ownership over the business as well. Um, not, I shouldn't say ownership. He's invested. Okay. Like emotionally invested in my business because... Um, you know, as an artist, I don't really have like coworkers and, you know, he's, he's my guy, you know, like he comes home and I talk to him about my creative problem or my particular, uh, prospect of, of business prospect that might be happening, or he helps me work through controversial things with, you know, fellow artists at the time, back when I had to deal with artists more often, or, you know, so he's, he's just in it a hundred percent with me. And financially, he has supported us (laughs) all these years. He's a financial advisor. He owns his own business now where um, he has partners, but he has his own business. What's it called? Do you mind? Oh, Strategic Financial. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's successful. He's doing a really great job, and he's worked really hard to get there because there was a time when, you know, a while back where he had lost his position, and that's what caused him to start his own business. And um, so he's, you know, I'm so proud of him. And you know, I have to be held back from trying to think of new ways for him to 
make his business a success, you know, because I'm like marketing crazy brain sometimes. Um, but yeah, so financially, he's just he's supported us more consistently all these years. And then I'm I am competitive, so I try really hard to stay there with him if I can. You've been a very different uh, artist than I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting, but now I see that my, my brother-in-law is the one that told me, Vance, you should you should have an artist on or a musician or something that's far away from, because a lot of the people that I was talking to were technical experts in things like chemistry or cardiology or architecture. And, and architecture is, is art in, in a large way, but we didn't get into the creative part of it. And I'm realizing now that his advice was really good because I had a caricature of who I thought you as an artist would be. And I wonder, that must happen to you a lot when people hear you're an artist. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, it can be, when we talked about uh, worrying about when people say something bad at an art fair, the most recent one I can think of is we were at the St. Louis art fair and my husband was kind of sitting back a little bit and I was sitting up front and someone made the assumption that uh this was my hobby and he's the one that pays the bills (laughs) and every time you know he too he's like what did he's he's like well she's the one making money this weekend (laughs) (laughs) so thankfully he's my champion you know but yeah it's hard to swallow yeah for people to make those kinds of assumptions that i'm not a driven person or that i'm crazy or that it's like my hobby which there's nothing wrong with that like art can be a hobby just like knitting or gardening you know like that's fine, but that's not for me. That's not not what it is for me. Maybe one day when I retire, it might be my hobby, but like I'm a driven person and this is my business and it means everything to me. And so for people to assume that it's, I don't know, optional or not as important or I don't know, it's, it, it hurts. <laughs> and it's got to be a little bit weird because when you like we said before business and art seem to be in opposition to one another and mm-hmm. so it, it you know to be seen as a business person or to be seen as an artist either one is not a full picture of you right uh but yeah i don't even know exactly where i'm going with that but it it seems like an interesting situation that you must be in all the time it is it's true um i i would say the thing that makes me most like quote unquote artist like is probably how I am in my personal life. Like I'm a, my kids call me a hippie, you know, I'm a super big earth lover, environmentalist. Um, I love music. I love to go to rock shows and, you know, like I, there's another side to me, but like I do approach being an artist as a business. And so I don't know. I I think that I probably have those aspects that people think of. I mean, I am a little crazy. Like, I'll admit it. Yeah, we're all a little crazy. (laughs) Anybody that's putting anything out into the world that is them is a little bit crazy. Yeah, but it doesn't doesn't define me as an artist. Like, I don't use that as my uh, description of me as an artist. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't want, you know, she's full of anxiety and loves rock music to be my tagline on my website. You know, <laughs> I want it to be the part where I spread joy. I want. And in, in the in a world of an environment, my sense is that most of the people that are environmentalists are worried that the world is getting worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're a person that's trying to put joy in the world. Is that an, is that an accurate representation? Do you feel like things are getting 
worse? And is that a good reason to put joy in the world? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so my paintings also can tend to be kind of like abstracted landscapes. We talked a little bit how yeah, I about do the trees. Tree yeah. Paintings. Yeah. yeah. So I do paintings. They tend to be abstracted landscapes either way. And sometimes I just happen to have trees in them because I have a strong connection with trees. But the abstracted paintings are they tend to look like landscapes too and it's not always purposeful and it's definitely not realistic but it it's my attempt to I am always connecting with nature always and um, when other people can connect with it that same way I think that it's just good for everybody to to connect with nature whenever possible and so if you know a beautiful art reminds you of nature reminds you to respect nature reminds you to love nature it's all good I love that. So I'm really glad you brought it back to trees. So if there was one form of art that my wife and I, we are very, very different in what we like as far as art. Mm. Her, So mine is I love human form. So I love like sculpture of people. Mm -hmm. And um, hence the Bruno Lucchese. I don't know if you know who he is, but he does all these these um, really exceptional ways of like somebody – shaking out a sheet oh. so you can see the motion within the the sculpture but you can also see their body mechanics which i think are just I, I love it i could look at human sculpture for hours and hours and hours and my wife uh likes art that she can tell the artist took a long 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 time to work on it yeah. so like going to mc escher for her this is great because mm -hmm. there's no way you can put those those tessellations together unless you really spent time pouring over it but the one area where we both overlap is that we're both really drawn to trees. Mm. And so we have tapestries that are trees and metal pieces of art that are trees. And then my mother-in-law recently came back from a trip to Ireland where she found my, my family crest. And oh. on it is a tree, That's which I, I thought that was incredible. That is so cool. That's really neat. So it's no accident, right? I must not be. I mean, I had, I think I had seen that before as a kid, but I never really registered. Yeah. But there's something almost uh, spooky about that, about, that about seeing the family crest as having the tree because they're all over our house. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I wonder what your wife's connection is. Yeah, I don't know. Probably, <laughs> I think she became a crow when we got married. So <laughs> There you go. Uh, I don't know. For, for me, trees have just always been like this special thing in the world, you know, that... Uh, there's so many things I think about trees. I think about like if they could talk, what they would tell us. Like there's trees that have been here for so long. And just imagine if they could tell us everything they've seen. It would be amazing. And then to think about like every everything about them is about growth and, and uh, working together and making the world a better place all by themselves. You know, like we can't we can't survive without them. And they can't survive with some of what we do. <laughs> um, I'm struck by trees about the speed with which they interact with the environment around them. Like the the time it takes, you know, an oak tree to grow, you know, over a hundred or two hundred years. My my uh, friend had a magnolia tree in his in his yard that was like a hundred and twenty years old, and it just died, and they had to cut it down, oh, and he was devastated. But I'm to sure. your point. Like the time scale of that tree and what it is seen and what is a, you know, what's important and what's not important is really, really different to a tree than it is to a human. Absolutely. Yeah. 
What other forms of of uh, art do you find yourself being attracted to that that aren't your own? Oh, I love I love every kind of art. There's not like an art form that I uh, am around that I don't find some value in. Um, I was just thinking about recently that we went to see uh, the Gauguin exhibit at the St. Louis Art Museum. Oh. And I don't know if you know very much about no. him, um, but he is, he's like an abstract expressionist that uh, I never, <laughs> this is probably going to sound terrible. I never thought he was that great of an artist. I never <laughs> understood why we were studying him. Okay. And, uh, but, you know, he had this exhibit at the art museum and my girlfriends wanted to go see it too. And so I was like, you know, I would like to see maybe like how he got to where he was and maybe like you mentioned, like seeing MC Escher's sketches from prior to when, prior to becoming a master. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I thought, well, that maybe that'll bring me around. And instead I learned, I don't know why they had an exhibit for him <laughs> because I found out that he, this is totally off topic. This is great. Uh, but because he, I learned that he basically was like a pedophile that he, he like moved to, uh, I can't remember what island, some island, and he had lots of 14 and 15-year-old girls that would come and stay with him, and he would impregnate, and then he would leave. And he had this whole career where he was this, you know, famous artist and make all these paintings of these villagers that were beautiful villagers. And some of his paintings were okay and some not so great. Um, but he's, a, he's like a staple in art history. Wow. And I, all, of, all of my girlfriends and I, as we left, we were just like, why are we celebrating this man? If we know, like, why? Who cares? That That's an interesting question th about if you, f do you think that what he was doing was wrong in his time? No, unfortunately it wasn't. That's an interesting question about judging an artist today based on societal norms uh that weren't there right to you do you feel like good good to judge them it's okay to do that or just that's just the way that it is i'm not sure i i, I have mixed feelings about that that idea that like you know just because right now we know this and think this do we judge someone back then that didn't know and think that i i have mixed feelings i don't i don't think anything is ever really cut and dry um but my personal reaction was i don't want to have anything to do with this guy and i can't let go of that yeah i mean and th therein lies the exact challenge because you find out somebody did horrible things and you think well i now I, I don't have a choice but to view them through the lens of 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 who i am today but at the same time if you wipe away everybody that has that didn't fulfill the standards of 2019 i'm pretty sure 2000 vance wouldn't be <laughs> wouldn't be acceptable today right and th that actually, one of the concepts I mentioned before, Lindy. Have you heard of this term before? Mm -hmm. This is a this is an interesting one. It's probably a good area for us to explore and then kind of wrap it up. But the concept of Lindy is the odds that an an artifact, an object, you know, whether it's art or writing, will be around in the future, is in direct proportion to how long it's been around so far. So, and you're not always going to be right about that. But so, for example. Let's say um, Oprah Winfrey's book that was written 20 years ago probably be around for another 20 years. Maybe it'll be around longer than that, but we can say pretty confidently that's how long. To Kill a Mockingbird will probably be around for another 50 to 60 years, 
the Bible has been around for, you know, a couple thousand years, it's likely it will be around for a couple of thousands of years. So when you hear that concept as an artist, does it resonate with you? Hmm. I don't know. I've just never, ever given that any thought before. Do you mean like in relation to my own art? Yeah. Do you think your art will be Lindy? Will it last long into the future? I sure hope so. I mean, so I made my first paintings in 2001. And I've al- I've often thought, like I know where one of them is because it's my cousin has it. But the other one, I've always wondered like, so is that like in the trash now? Or did like that, uh, did that, you know, owner of that bar, which closed now, like what did she do with it? Is it in her home? Did she give it to someone, you know? So I do, I do think about that. You've put a lot of your own emotion and things into the world and it just goes. I'll never know. Right. I mean, sometimes I'll know. Wow. I did not think about that. Mm-hmm. I've thought about it a lot. Like I, you know, of course the bad thoughts are, oh my gosh, I'm going to see this on Craigslist one day <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, in a sitting on the side of the road next to a trash can. <laughs> that would be horrible. Um you know, and then your fan, my fantasy is, you know, what if someday, you know, maybe after I'm gone, people put them all together somewhere and have a show, you know, at some museum or something, that would be pretty awesome. But if my goal was to always spread joy, I suppose that's all I ever needed them to do. And if they did it during their time with someone, then I, I did what I set out to do. That's great. I love that. That's really cool. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought of it. (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, You know, I think most of um, most of the time we don't know what we think until we say it out loud, which is one of the joys of having a podcast is that you get to ask somebody questions and then they get to decide what they think. And you may you may get, uh, you know, down the driveway from from the studio and be like, wait a second. I'm not so sure I do think that. But but at its core, it's fun to just explore. What do you think about things? And and, uh, it's been a really great pleasure to have you here and and to explore and uh, and to open up your world of artistry. You've been incredibly open and I'm I'm, I'm really grateful for it. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. If people wanted to learn more about your art or just stay connected with you on social media, how would they do that? Well, my website is just www.heatherhaymart.com and you can connect to my social media through my website, but I'm also on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all with my name, Heather Haymart or Heather Haymart Fine Art. And what do you put on your uh, your Instagram and Twitter? How do you decide what goes on there? Well, uh, it's usually my process. A lot of my studio work goes on my social media. And so like, I just kind of made a rule for myself that every day that I make something, I'm going to share that on Facebook, or at least I try to remember to. So I'll take process photos while I work, or maybe like when I'm finished working, take a picture of what I just worked on that day, and then share a photo and maybe what I was thinking about, or today I'll probably share a picture with you. Oh, that, that'd be great. I mean, this is that's neat to, to have that creative process. I will definitely follow and see if you brought your bucket of water down. And <laughs> I also have done videos too, um, but I haven't done that in a while. I would do time-lapse videos. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Of the whole painting process? Yeah. Oh, I'll definitely check that out. So I'll throw some of that on uh, on, on the in the links uh, in the description. Cool. So this has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for stopping by. I uh, 
I feel like this was one of the times when I learned the most about a person and a way of thinking about an entire discipline I knew nothing at all about. So that's awesome. Thank you so much for thank coming you. by. Well, that's going to do it for this week's interview with Heather Haymart. Thank you so much to Heather for stopping by. I recognize that I broke up her morning creative process, but I hope it was worth it. I know that I was dropped right into the center of a whole different network of people that I didn't know anything about. And that was when Heather posted her Instagram photo of us doing this interview. There were loads of people there that were really excited for her. And I got to see not only Heather's art on Instagram, but then the artists that were interested in seeing her do a podcast. And that's a great piece of advice. You know, if you are listening to this podcast and you find one of these guests interesting, Go stop by their Instagram or their Twitter, check out what they're talking about, what they're interested in, and then look at who are they interacting with, who is interacting with them, because that's how you make one hop out and you find people that you would never have found on your own. And I know from exploring some of Heather's network that she has friends that run the gamut, an incredible spectrum, everything from artists to what look like bookkeepers and uh, all sorts of other people. So Today, this week, if you don't um, have somebody to follow or some new network to get into, go check out Heather Haymart Art and uh, send her a note that you heard her on the Vance Crow podcast. I'm going to sign off for here. Just remember to stop back on Friday when we have a bonus episode. This week, I am going to be talking about the art of journaling, which... um, If somebody would have told me that I was ever going to make a podcast on journaling, I would have laughed. But it actually is probably one of the foundational skills that makes me me. And I think that it could make you even more you that you can be. So I'm going to sign off for now. Thanks for joining.